When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking cowardly, cowardly custard. We're talking this house is ours. And we're talking repression and isolation and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking live us in peace live us in peace oh not the one i thought you were gonna go with oh what do you think i was gonna go with i am your daughter oh uh okay i know i normally go for the obvious ones and i was like that's if scary movie did it i don't need to do it (laughs) okay that's your one i called it last week i said you only get one that is your one oh i think this is only in like one scene in scary movie three so there's not even like a plethora of parody to talk about with this one but everyone (laughs) we are discussing alejandro amenabar's the others from 2001 hmm Mm, yeah, scary ghost story stuff. Yes, and lest y'all think that we programmed this because Criterion just announced that they're releasing, uh, they're doing a release of this in October, that is not the case. We had this on the schedule all year. <laughs> this is true, yeah. I mean, should we have maybe waited until the Criterion comes out so we could gather a better production history on this? I MF? know. Yeah. Um, but no, folks, the other reason that we're doing this is because we have a queer director. Yes, it's a queer director. But before we get too much more into this, let's why don't we bring in our guest that's waiting in the wings, Joe? Sounds good. All right, everyone. She is the host of the Bodies of Horror podcast, part of the Anatomy of a Scream podcast network, which puts horror films on an examination table and discusses them through a lens of disability. Please welcome Nicole Goble. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Horror Queers, Nicole. Hello. And just like doves, I poop on windows. <laughs> oh my god. I don't. You gotta pay extra for that. 
<laughs> so, Nicole, tell us, what is your relationship with the others? Did you see this in theaters way back in 2001? Oh, I did. So I grew up in Iowa, and I lived in a very small rural area, and there was no movie theaters. We had, I say that, but there was a one-screen kind of second-run theater where it would basically just be family films. Mm. And... They would, in all, like, all through December, it would just be classic Christmas movies because people would come to town and bring their kids. And so they would just kind of dump them off. But, yes, I remember coming back. This came out between my freshman and sophomore years of college. A bunch of us had gone back home, uh, those of us that had left to go to college, and we made the trek all the way to Des Moines, which is French for Des Moines, um, <laughs> to see the others. And we kind of lost our shit. Yeah, this was quite the phenomenon when it came out. I remember, I mean, the comparisons to The Sixth Sense are inevitable. So we'll just acknowledge, yes, everyone says, oh, I called the twist in this because I saw The Sixth Sense a couple years earlier. But I think that undervalues the movie just because it has a similar kind of ending well that's honestly so this is the first time i had seen this since theaters and i I was oh god 2001 12 i was in seventh grade when this came out but i i remember being 12 and sitting there thinking oh like i know the twist like it's just the sixth sense but honestly on this rewatch i actually think the movie is more rewarding when you already know the ending because Mm -hmm. i loved this on a rewatch yeah i think it's really powerful like i've seen a lot of his other films so i had seen his two spanish language films uh thesis as well as open your eyes which of course is then adapted into the tom cruise movie and he's an interesting director because he's very stylish, but he does a lot of these kind of psychological mindfuck films. So I think there's just something in him that enjoys a good sort of understated twist. Yeah, I um honestly, my thing, I just was amazed with how beautiful this movie was. Like, it's mostly, I mean, it is a single setting. Honestly, I don't think we we leave the house only to be to go to the grounds. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought like the gothic horror and admittedly i don't think this film is particularly scary but i think i've said this so many times this year but like the vibe (laughs) the atmosphere of this film is so just inviting like i want to be wrapped in this movie like a blanket yeah like a blanket of fog yeah but (laughs) yes (laughs) i think it's a good example of a film that when people say that uh, if a scene or a film is particularly dark where you Mm. have a lot of dark scenes Mm -hmm. you can't see anything this film actually has a lot of darkness but you can actually see what is happening you see the people and it (laughs) makes it so so much more i think compelling yeah i don't think it's necessarily scary but it's really i think unsettling Yes, I think that's a really, really good descriptor. And I agree with you. You know, I mean, in the past like 10 years, movies have gotten like not just dark, but like murky to where you can't. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you say, oh, you can see the characters, and it kind of sounds like an exaggeration, but. No, that that's true, because sometimes you see movies today in the theater and you're like, you're squinting to make out things on the screen. Either that or they're so overexposed because they don't trust that the audience can sort of follow along that everything is just incredibly well lit. And you're like, okay, well, where are the shadows? Where's the nuance? Like, 
I, I agree with you, Trace. I think this movie is really carefully crafted. And it's an example of one of those, okay, we're going to use what light source we have to help elevate, hmm, to help make the film that much more atmospheric. Yeah, yeah. I also wonder if digital technology is the reason why movies are looking the way they are today, because you couldn't go in and just slap a filter on it back in 2001. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they definitely they still could. had filters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but not like what we're doing today. Like we we actually worked with like in life elements during the filming of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they shot the film deliberately so that they could use the light source or lack of light, and then yeah, you can touch it up in post, but you're not relying on like a post conversion kind of thing, right? Well, let, let's talk about how this movie got made. So, I mean, as you said, Joe, yeah, this is uh, the I want to say the third film by Amenabar, and who by this point had made a name for himself directing the 1997 film Open Your Eyes or Abrelos Ojos, which, as you said, would be adapted into that Tom Cruise movie. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what that movie is it's vanilla, vanilla sky vanilla yes. sky <laughs> speaking of cruise though so he was still married to nicole kidman at this time and after he and his producing partner paula wagner saw the film they agreed to executive produce the others as a starring vehicle for kidman and this must have been like their big last hurrah because you know they had done eyes wide shut in 99 and mm -hmm. vanilla sky actually came out four months after the others so i wonder if like while he was doing his negotiations to get vanilla sky made because i'm going to assume he was a producer on that film as well i believe so yeah. if he was like oh yeah can you do something for my wife too please <laughs> it was probably more like we're spending a ton of time together what do you have coming up oh that sounds good yeah we could pump my wife over to that and then i can hook up with katie holmes wait what who said that that's the thing so they both got divorced in 2000 they both got divorced they divorced each other in 2001 and okay again like this is another thing where i'm like i saw it on imdb trivia but i don't know if it's true nicole kevin apparently didn't really want to do this movie to begin with because it was too mm -hmm. dark and she had just finished moulin rouge and she was like i don't want to be in that headspace again yes i can confirm that that's true there's a making of doc on the physical dvd that i think <laughs> nicole and i both watched yeah. and she she does say that she was worried about having to get into such a dark really repressed headspace well and you also have to figure that we're in a weird spot with the kidman cruise relationship mm -hmm. and I'm sure she was just kind of going through a lot of stuff at that time. And they had been doing movies back to back to back. Yeah. And so I can imagine her being like, I'm just going through it. Like, let me, yeah. like, let me just lay down. <laughs> well, and let's be clear. Nicole Kidman, I mean, everyone in this movie, I think, is really, really good. But Nicole Kidman carries the film because she yeah. is the emotional core of this film. And correct me if I'm wrong. Was it this Okay, she got the Oscar nomination for Moulin Rouge, but a lot of people actually secretly felt that this was the film, or this film did such heavy lifting for her in terms of star wattage that it helped her to land that Moulin Rouge Oscar nom. Yes, that sounds accurate, but then she would win for Cold Mountain, right? Blah. <laughs> I like Cold Mountain a lot, but it's someone I want to like revisit very often. I don't know. I just make fun of Renee Zellweger saying, They spit in the air and they say it's raining. Oh my God. Sorry. I I'm fucked up. Also, Renee Zellweger won her Oscar for that movie because they thought she should have won it for Chicago. So that was her like consolation prize. Um, Nicole Kidman, of course, won for The Hours. There we go. Mm. <laughs> this has been Oscar Watch. I know. <laughs> The Hours, though, is great. Please watch it. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, 
Yeah, The Others was primarily a Spanish production. Uh, among the companies that were engaged in financing and production incentives for the film were TVE, which was Televisión Española, and the Spanish Ministry of Culture. Filming took place from October 2nd to December 5th of the year 2000, and despite being set in Jersey, um, not New Jersey, uh, this is an island near the coast of northwest France, filming took place entirely in Spain with a mostly Spanish crew. Uh, filming locations are, among other spots, the Palacio de los Onillos in Las Fuagas, Cantabria, uh, northern Spain, and in Madrid. I don't know where all those places would have been if we're always at this fucking house. Yeah. Also, I feel like you said all of that just because you wanted to show off your Spanish skills. Which I don't even think it was that good. So <laughs> Spanish speakers are probably like, dude, shut up. <laughs> I mean, in the same way that French speakers are probably like, dude, shut up. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, Amin Abar composed the score for the film. Uh, so he pulls triple duty, writing, directing, and scoring this. He actually did this for a lot of his films, uh, including uh, the Javier Bardem starring The Sea inside and the more recent while at war um and of course Abrelos Ojos. But while filming, he would hum or play work in progress pieces while shooting to help actors get a sense of the mood or tone. And I think this is funny. Like, okay, playing like work in progress, sure. But having him just hum while you're shooting scenes. <laughs> yeah, I found that factoid perplexing because all I could think about is that if I was an actor, like particularly think of Nicole Kinman, some of the really dark places she's going to and like you said nicole she's got you know probably a lot on her mind already <laughs> and here's the dude just like behind the camera you know humming along giving us i mean it's not like he'd be humming a happy song or something he'd be humming what we hear as the score in this film but still it'd just be like my, my process though <laughs> i need i shh, shh. I wonder if when that the the because the, the, the big jump scare of the film was when that door slams in her face at least for me personally um so i wonder <laughs> I wonder if he, like, does the jump scare with his humming while he's, like, <laughs> slamming this door in her face. <laughs> I'd love to know. Um, but the film was released originally in Spain and a Spanish-dubbed version. Uh, the film was particularly embraced by Spanish critics and the public, where it became the highest-grossing film of the year at the box office. Uh, and it was very popular at the Goya Awards, which are basically the Spanish version of the Oscars, where it won... Ready for this laundry list? Um, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Production Design, Best Production Supervision, and Best Sound. It was nominated for Best Actress for Kidman and Best New Actor and Best New Actress for the Children, James Bentley and Alakina Mann, uh, but none of them won. Uh, hmm. Maybe because they weren't Spanish. <laughs> I was going to say, I really wonder... <laughs> Uh, the Others was released in North America on August 10th, 2001, in 1,678 theaters, and grossed $14 million its opening weekend, raking fourth at the box office behind American Pie 2, Rush Hour 2, and The Princess Diaries. However, and this is something I didn't know, it stayed in fourth place for three more weeks. It never, I mean, it would drop like 20-25% every week, mm -hmm. and like, which is, especially for a horror film pretty unheard of right it would expand to more theaters and its widest release was 2843 theaters over a month later during the weekend of september 14th of 2001 and oddly enough the next weekend september 21st it placed second at the box office Ooh. but here's the thing it placed second grossing five million dollars right bad box office weekend yes the only new release that weekend was the mariah carey starring film glitter which opened in Ooh. 11th place <laughs> first place that week went to uh, hardball the keanu reeves baseball movie which was in its second week and grossed eight million dollars and i was like well yeah why how did the number one movie this weekend what eight million dollars 
was the week after 9-11 or two weeks after 9-11. Yeah, it was interesting. On the DVD, I imagine it must have been done either when they knew when the film was coming out or shortly after, I, I think the former, but they all talk about how they were worried that the film was actually just being dumped because they knew that American Pie was just going to gobble up all the money. So they were all quite surprised when the film actually managed to leg it out. Well, you know who the American distributor was? Oh, yeah, I do. Because <laughs> let me talk about the fucking whiplash. Nicole, did you feel that when you put this on? You're like, oh, no. Dimension films? <laughs> yeah. Like, I... Fuck. Now it's... I mean, it truly is just now. Take a drink. Mm -hmm. And, like, crawl, crawl somewhere for a minute and be like, this is what we consumed at this time. All the time. Yeah. And folks, mm -hmm. if you don't remember, Dimension is involved in the Weinsteins. And obviously, then every little film that we kind of love from this period is just touched by these ogres. Okay. Doesn't this film, though, seem like it doesn't really fit the Dimension label? And no uh -huh. shade to Dimension. I mean, like, you know, Dimension gave us such wonderful things like Scream, From Dust Till Dawn, a bunch of Hellraiser straight to video sequels, and then this, which. Oh, I, I want to say elevated, but that's not what I mean. You know, it, it just seems like it's of <laughs> it's a, a different classier. Yeah, it's a little classier than some of those films. Right. Which maybe that was the thing, because I, I'm sure they did put this up for Oscar nominations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that you you said it, I think, when when going through kind of its accolades, like, I think this really was, I think, primed to get Nicole that kind of recognition. This was right. really her vehicle. And it really is her vehicle. Like, this mm -hmm. is her movie front and center. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. It went on to gross $96.5 million in the United States and Canada. And again, compared to that $14 million start, it grossed $24 million in Spain, becoming the highest grossing Spanish film of all time at that time. It grossed $89 million in other countries, giving it a worldwide gross of about $210 million against a budget of $17 million. Wild. Like, good money in this movie. And critics were uh, kind to it as well. We have a positive critical reception. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, we're looking at a score of 84% with an average score of 7.3 out of 10. Metacritic, it's got a 74 out of 100. And Letterboxd users have given it a 7.4 out of 10. And I cannot tell you how angry I was that the average <laughs> score on Rotten Tomatoes was at a 7.4 to make all of these uniform because that's never happened before. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. That's really all I have. Although I did see that... There was an announcement of a remake made in April 2020, so a month after pandemic lockdown. And that never happened. Yeah, um, it said later that year. So in late 2020, it was announced that Universal Pictures will, would co-produce and distribute the film with Sentient Entertainment. But I couldn't find any news on that, like, since the end of 2020. Hmm. So probably DOA now. Probably so. Also, I mean... Oh, God, you know, I don't like to say, like, do we need that? Like, but like, do we need that? I mean, this is very clearly a Spanish production, but it's also an English language film. So I would say, fuck no. <laughs> the American remake of the Spanish, the others, Los Otros. <laughs> do it the other way around. I want to see the Spanish version of this film. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Honestly, like, uh, I think the, it's not like the same story, I guess, but the closest vibe I can get to this is um, The Orphanage. That, I think that's a good comparison it feels very <laughs> it's weird in that it feels both kind of like a period piece but also very current mm -hmm. in kind of its overall tone 
So I I definitely get that similar vibe from the orphanage. Yeah, and especially even with the production design, the architecture of these houses, like, I mean, of course, the house is a character, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Trace, you said gothic horror, and people are probably screaming at us like, oh my god, why haven't you talked about, like, the Shirley Jackson, the Innocents, all these other sort of famous gothic horrors, but using my reading, I'm going to argue that all of that is applicable, but also the Spanishness of this movie is also quite important. Ooh, do you have quotes and sources for the Spanishness of this movie? I just have one, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will say, Nicole, so Joe was like making, oh, no, well, he wasn't making fun of me, but he like pushed back at me because I was like, honestly, I, I see the innocence here, but I feel like if we got a sequel to this movie, we could have like a Beetlejuice style, like with Nicole Kidman hiring a bioexist to get the living out of her house. <laughs> but true. also would watch. Would 100% watch. <laughs> well, we already have a Lydia. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh man um but yeah okay well let's talk about this movie all right so uh my source for this episode is ernesto r acevedo munez and he wrote a chapter in contemporary spanish cinema and genre called horror of allegory the others and its context So I'm not going to do a huge historical deep dive for you folks, but I am going to reference this film in conjunction with a couple of other relatively well-known Spanish genre films, such as The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, which Mm -hmm. it is often compared because they all are commenting either very clearly or sort of obliquely on the Spanish Civil War. So that ran from ran as if it was like a political thing. Um, This was a war that went on between 1936 and 1939. And then of course, that goes directly into World War Two from 1939 to 45. And this happens to coincide with the rise of the dictator Francisco Franco. Mm. So he basically controls the country from 1938 all the way to 1975. And he was a big old dictator. So whenever we talk about Spanish genre films, like the vast majority of them now are commenting on his reign, which was entirely focused on repression and rebellion. Kids, is this sounding familiar to the others at all? A little bit. (laughs) A little bit. So all of those films um, have a focus on childhood, and specifically movies that are made after 1970 often make reference to this kind of intersection between the horror genre, allegory, dreams, children under threat, either real or imagined, but these children are often made to be fearless. So they're kind of like the voice of the new generation, aka coming out of post-Francoism, how does Spain move forward? So we're dealing with a significant amount of repression, but also we need to recognize these atrocities of what happened during the Franco era and then move forward and leave it in the past. So there's that push and pull tension. It's actually kind of similar to what Germany has to do after World War II. Mm, or what Nicole Kevin has to do in this movie. A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so we'll come back to Acevedo Munoz in a little bit, but uh, let's kick it off, shall we? So we get the credits, and we hear the voice of Grace Stewart, who is played by Nicole Kidman, and she's talking about fairy tale shit, and we're getting grisly images, which is very much 
hey, this is the mood of the film. Wait, was it a f- I thought it was a Bible story, which I, it's I mean. It's a Bible story. She's... Oh, is it? Well, you know what? Uh, I stand by my, I stand by it. It's a fairy tale. No, I'm kidding. She's, she is Catholic. Oh, yeah, boy, very. is she ever. I feel like we haven't seen a depiction of Catholicism, what, like outside of a religious horror film that is quite this strong. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like, because I, I wouldn't call well, I wouldn't call this a religious horror film, but religion is such a huge part of the story and the, the Nicole Kidman character, um, mm-hmm. which is also, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> she's got some guilt, some of it Catholic, some of it murderous. Um, but sure. <laughs> well, and her name is Grace. Yes, literally. <laughs> it it should also be noted that Catholicism is huge in Spain. Like it's a bedrock of mm-hmm. their society, so there is a lot of like Catholic guilt in that country. <laughs> okay, I don't know if this will be funny enough to keep it in, but have you all seen the Drew Barrymore movie Ever After? Yes. So there's that whole bit at the end where they're, they're, she's going to get married. I'm sorry, the prince is going to get married to the Spanish princess because you know, oh, Drew Barrymore's a slave or something, but she just won't stop crying <laughs> when she's at the altar. <laughs> Every time I think about Spanish Catholics, I just think about that one bitch in Ever After. (laughs) That is such a unique reference, Trey. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the film proper opens with Grace awaking from a nightmare with a blood-curdling scream. And just to keep this religious train going... I really thought of the opening of Mother, which is Darren Aronofsky's kind mm. of ode to environmentalism slash reincarnation. And it's very much like a baptism or a rebirth because this movie has a lot of cycles, right? And of course, this is the only time in the film that Grace wears white. Actually, okay, for both of you, I never even considered, I was always confused, or not, not really confused, I don't really think it's the point, but like, how long after the murder mm-hmm. of her children does the does the opening of this movie pick up like do we if we're going with the mother comparison which i actually didn't think about joe i think you're on something there but do we think that maybe this is oh no it's not like right after she murdered them because we find out oh, sorry everyone spoilers she murdered her kids um <laughs> <laughs> but like how, do y'all, do y'all, how long do y'all think it's been since she killed them i think it's supposed to be like a week like a week since the servants, the servants left. left. Okay. Yeah. So I think like it went down and everyone checked out and then we get our our three our three guests coming to check back in. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense to me. I mean, I read this as maybe she just goes through this every week, right? Like she's been locked in this pattern for time in memoriam. But I think the most logical response is yours, Nicole. It's been about a week. And I figure that she like I, I do like though the the comparison to mother because I in watching it now, I I definitely got that vibe. And I did mm-hmm. kind of question myself if it may have been sooner, but it just doesn't really make sense and you do get the sense that maybe where it's at that point where like layers are starting to peel for her mm-hmm. and like this construct is slowly going away for her so the nightmares are intensifying mm-hmm. i guess that's the thing for me and like i mean granted i don't really know timelines of trauma whatever but like it's 
maybe I'm jumping too far ahead because this is the very end where she tells them like, oh yeah, like I killed you. And then I was like, oh wait, I'm, I have a second chance because I heard you laughing. So I was like, okay, so you were aware of what you did, but I guess once you heard your kids laughing, you erased the memory yourself and like the trauma was like, you know, you were um, protecting your, it was your brain protecting itself from the trauma. Well, I mean, hypothetically, her brain was undergoing its own trauma because she shot herself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, she says she doesn't even remember. She's like, oh, the pillow was just in my hands and you weren't moving. So she doesn't even remember killing them. She just knows that she did. Yeah. Like how much of this is repression versus forgetting versus willful forgetting due to repression? Uh, I think it's mostly just unconscious repression because even Mrs. Mills, who I will constantly refer to as Bertha because Bertha. Um, <laughs> but she's like, oh, I, well, I couldn't tell you yet. You weren't ready because she didn't want to mm -hmm. break her psyche again. Right. Yeah, but that's – but how many times do we have people that you know that they know mm -hmm. that there's this there's this thing that we have to talk about, but we dance around it because we don't want to mm – -hmm. we don't want to upset them, but they know. They're completely cognizant of a particular issue, but we want to dance around it. And I feel like Bertha is on that journey to where she's like, I just wish – she would stop this mm -hmm. business and accept. For sure. And we'll see it again, too, once she does start to believe that there's ghosts in the house, quote unquote ghosts. But then her husband comes back and she's like, oh, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I mean, we can question whether or not the husband is even a real figure or if that's Grace's like, oh, I was about to realize something. And then my husband magically appears in the woods and I get a reprieve for a couple of days. Mm, I would buy into that more if no one else saw him. True. Yeah. So Grace has woken up with this scream. We have no fucking idea what's going on in this movie yet, but we do see these three prospective servants moving towards the house through the mist. Oh, what a great establishing, basically an establishing shot of this entire house, but <laughs> it's setting such a fantastic ominous tone. It's very creepy and I love it. Mm -hmm. So these are Gardener Edmund Tuttle, played by Eric Sykes. As you mentioned, yes. Housekeeper Nanny Bertha Mills, played by Fionula Flanagan. And finally, Mute Lydia, played by Elaine Cassidy. Trace, do you want to yeah. say <laughs> who you know Elaine Cassidy from? Everyone, if you've ever seen the TV show, the one-hit wonder CBS series Harper's Island, um, Elaine Cassidy is the lead, Abby Mills, in that show. <laughs> mm -hmm. yes. It's one-hit wonder, as though it was a hit, and that's why it wasn't canceled after one well, season. Well, <laughs> a, a, a one-hit People discovered it much later, and now people, a lot of people like it now. <laughs> there we go. Yes. I will say that with Flanagan, I actually, did, did y'all or your parents ever read Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood? No. Yes. Oh, God. Okay. Nicole's <laughs> like, yes. My, my mom, I, I remember my mom reading that multiple times when I was a kid, and so when that movie came out. It was such a big deal. Like, it was, oh, we're going to go see it. Oh, but watch out. Like, Ashley Judd's going to be an abusive mom. She's going to beat her kids. But we're going to take you anyway because this book is so good. Um, <laughs> Flanagan is in that. And she's really good. But I feel like I haven't really seen a ton of her. Um, she was like the mom in that Four Brothers movie with Mark Wahlberg. But that's about that's the last thing I remember seeing her in. Yeah, it, it's bizarre because she got almost as good reviews as Kidman did. To the point, I think she might have been nominated for Supporting Actress. Or if not, she was definitely in talks about mm -hmm. it. And yeah, it just seems like one of those actors where... I know that she has a background in theater, so I wonder if maybe she just doesn't do as many movies because her love is, you know, hitting the boards. Mm, maybe. Maybe. 
Maybe. <laughs> if people have like another good horror recommendation with her, let us know. Yeah. Okay, so they show up at this giant palatial house, and we immediately open the door, and Grace is like, hello, what do you want? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) She's incredibly guarded, but um, they explain, okay, so they're here because they saw a job posting, and so she lets them in, and this is a lot of exposition and laying the groundwork of the house so it's pulling double duty but i think it's actually pretty it's pretty solidly done because we're learning a ton about grace herself and how she approaches this like she's super in control aka controlling (laughs) and you know we're learning things like okay the master of the house is away at war she values silence because she gets headaches uh the previous servants disappeared a week ago and of course the big kicker the thing that was in all of the trailers no door must be opened before the last one is closed. I love this. I think this is a really fun... It's not a gimmick per se, but like I think it's a fun way to build tension to be like, what? Mm-hmm. Why? Why do we need the door shut? And of course, you know, as soon as we say something like that, there's going to be whole set pieces built around not just doors opening and closing, but who is responsible if a door is left open. Mm-hmm. Well, and even sound, like just the sound yes. of the clicks. Uh of her unlocking and locking doors to go from one space to the next it's really kind of like you kind of get in a trance Mm -hmm. i was just thinking hypnotic yeah so okay after all of the curtains have been drawn this is when grace introduces mrs mills and lydia to the children Anne and nicholas as you said trace alakina man and james bentley And we learned that they are deathly allergic to sunlight. So just a couple of minutes of exposure could kill these children. And of course, Grace loves her children more than anything in the world. (laughs) (laughs) You're terrible. (laughs) I just, honestly, the whole thing, um, because rewatching this, I'm like, wow, our protagonist is a fucking child-murdering, suicidal, crazy person. Like, I (laughs) don't She is struggling with grief and mental illness. And I mean, we didn't really say it, Trace. You kind of mentioned, oh, yeah, this is like, it's a very isolated island. So the Isle of Jersey is a formerly Nazi-occupied British island that is near the French coast of Brittany. So this isn't like, oh, it's the island of, you know, like the United Kingdom. (laughs) It's like, this is a small fucking place, and they were an integral part of the war, but also they're kind of out there on their own. Do you think, I mean, look, I don't think the rules of the ghost stuff is really, like, important to this film here, but do you think it's impossible for them to leave these grounds? I do. Yeah. Okay. I think they can, I think they can Uber. (laughs) (laughs) Could they catch a boat Uber or a boober? I wonder what this island looks like now. If we have any listeners on the Isle of Jersey, please let us know, do you have Uber? Or do you just constantly get caught in the fog? Okay, so we go down for breakfast, and again, we're sort of laying this foundation of mystery and what the fuck is actually going on in this house, because we do hear that the children are fearful of being left alone again, and uh, specifically Anne casually drops that time the others left, and Mommy went mad. So I I think that was my only issue, and I'm starting to go back to this timeline thing of when did they all die, but it's like, the people at the end like they moved in really quickly after they died <laughs> i mean it's probably a good sale 
I was going to say, <laughs> you know, this is a place where a bunch of murders happen. They got it on the cheap. They're a family of three who are looking to just like really expand. So I will say, though, I do think that these two kids are really good in this. I'm surprised they haven't really. I'm sorry. They haven't really. They haven't done anything really since this, this, this movie came out. Yeah, I was surprised by that, too, because if you look, you can see updated pictures of what they look like as adults. And it's like they're still both incredibly photogenic. You would think that people would recognize, oh, they're talented and they're highly like they're highly photogenic. Well, and this little girl, man, I mean, like, honestly, she does almost as much heavy lifting as well, maybe not almost as much as Kidman, but she's doing a lot for a little girl. Yeah, the documentary said that she, I think, was the hardest to cast. It took them nearly half a year to find the right actress who could basically go toe to toe with Kidman. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't want that if I was a child actor, <laughs> especially not now. <laughs> no. Okay, so Grace catches Mrs. Mill in a lie pretty quickly because she goes to check the mail and she discovers that the post was never collected, which means that there's no way they could have seen an advertisement that she was looking for servants. This is when Mrs. Mill admits they used to work in the house and have fond feelings for it, so they just came by on a lark. And, you know, when you're watching a horror movie, particularly one with a mystery, your ears always just perk up at all of these different mentions. And you think, well, that's suspicious, isn't it? Yeah, I think that this is really like watching it after you've seen it and you understand the ending. Mm -hmm. This is really where you're like, OK, right. <laughs> OK, I get it now. Oh, you really told us at the beginning. Yes. It, it like it's so firmly laid out. <laughs> That's the thing, honestly. And well, and even still with the, the taken as a whole, I forgot that like the servants were like much more menacing like that it, earlier on in the film. It's like, I think it's before even the halfway point where it's like, "Oh, these servants know something." Mhm. Mm but that's why I, I almost wonder is like, I mean, I don't think this is a movie where it, where it hinges on the twist. And again, like I said, I think it actually works better when you already know the twist. Mm -hmm. it, it's good on a first time watch if you manage to get surprised by it. It's a really solid gotcha. But then also, yeah, you can definitely go back and rewatch it and appreciate how it's crafted to spell this out. But then also it's just it's a really, really well made film. We've got great performances from at least three of these actors. So it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, why, why do we not talk about this movie more often? I think you get to be more in the sadness when you rewatch it after this. Yeah. Piece, because I think that you're constantly like you said, oh, it's a mystery. We have to figure out what is really going on. Mm -hmm. And then I think if you watch it again, you really do. It's just a really sad movie. Well, it is. You're right, because it almost becomes more of a character study where you're watching a, a mentally ill woman, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, grapple with the fact that she murdered her children. And so when – yeah, I, I, that's a really good insight. Well, that and I think, you know, when you compare this to something like The Sixth Sense, which it was very much in conversation, like, I don't think the movies were, but I think publicly the discourse mm -hmm. was very much, oh, let's talk about these two movies – as though they're talking to each other or the others is specifically talking to yeah. that. And I think the others is sadder and it doesn't have like there's a certain level of catharsis when you get to the end of the film and they're still together and they're talking about how it's their house. But it's still 
like a pretty fucking sad movie. Whereas something like The Sixth Sense, you can look at, oh, Bruce Willis's storyline is very sad, but Haley Joel Osment's storyline with his mom is uplifting. Like we end the film in a better place with them. So I think that one almost goes down a little bit more smoothly. It- I haven't seen The Sixth Sense in a long time. Does Bruce Willis, like, move on? Like, do ghosts move on in that movie? I get the impression that, yes. Like, we we finally understand that it's, like, him letting go of his wife, who, of course, he's been, you know, supposedly going through a separation with, or they're having marital difficulties the entire film. Well, that's – because that adds to the sadness for this film for me, because I'm like, oh, these kids – it's like fucking uh, Kirsten Dunst in Interview with the Vampire, where they're just going to be kids forever, and she's going to be raising them forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so when Grace discovers that Mrs. Mill has lied about this, she also clarifies that she doesn't like strange ideas or fantasies, particularly when they come from her children. So, you know, we've talked about how she's very controlling, she likes to be the one to set the rules, but also she deals like she's a pragmatic woman. She deals with things she can see, things she can touch, because those are easier to control. So she doesn't like things like stories and fabrications, which is ironic because it's like, let's read the Bible all the time. <laughs> I was gonna say <laughs> I again, I I don't wanna I don't mean to insult the people who are like, uh, hello, the Bible. <laughs> like it's a big deal for a lot of people. It's just like those are to a certain level, those are stories. They're fantasy. Yeah, it's a Greek mythology. Yeah. But I think the kids even call that out yeah, they, fairly they do. early on. And so I, I think that's, it is really funny where she does <laughs> explicitly say, like, I don't like this foolishness. However, my kids are going to go uh, spend hours separated reading Bible stories and then have to recite them. That's what I like. Like, this doesn't feel like like Christian propaganda, like right? Because we do have characters Mm -hmm. openly questioning the validity of religion, specifically Catholicism, in this movie, and I like that. I like that the movie, and it's not a huge, it's not a huge part of it that the movie is really focusing on. Oh, is is Christianity like true or not or whatever? Mm -hmm. But it's still like it's there under the surface. Like the 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 conversation is there. It's just not one that the movie is like outwardly having in every scene. Well, and they they exist in there. In their faith, but you don't get a scene where the three folks turn up and they're like, okay, well, what faith are you? Mm-hmm. Right. So there's actually a, I, I, like, it's very much part of them, but I, I kind of appreciate that there is that distance because otherwise I feel like it's kind of a little bit <laughs> like we get it. We get it. And important to note, too, Amenabar didn't come out publicly until 2004, three years after this movie was made. Now, I don't know if that speaks to, like, oh, is that what he realized and he decided to come out? Or maybe he knew William for much longer, like most of us did. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I think having a queer man write and direct this story that is firmly steeped in Christianity is really interesting. Well, and I think that the film isn't actually coming down on Christianity, Mm -hmm. because if you think about it, like the very next scene is where we're introduced to her sort of tyrannical disciplinary practice of yes, like the children have to do all of this work around the Bible, they have to memorize passages and so on. But we're also introduced to this concept of oh, well, if you tell lies, or children who don't behave end up in limbo. And, you know, I think the film gets some good mileage out of the adversarial responses between Anne and Grace. But at the end of the film, 
we do get confirmation that they are in limbo. So in a way, all of Grace's mm. beliefs are confirmed by this film. Okay, wait. So th that was actually what I was going to say. So I don't think it's a confirmation that they're in limbo because even Grace says, I don't know. To mm. me, because we we don't know how we don't know if ghosts move on. I mean, we we know that the father comes back and left, but again, the rules are really. I, I don't know what they are. So I I like that the film ends kind of on a I we are dead now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if my religion was right or not. Like I don't know what this is. Okay. But even that that opening, you know, we're not saying oh Grace was emphatically wrong or mm -hmm. Anne was emphatically right. Like. I love that it's nebulous. So if depending on your faith or how strong your Catholicism is, you could read this in a way that supports your claims just as easily as other people would say no. Well, that's why because honestly, for me, it's like, oh, God, like she's so like she's so strongly and proudly Christian. And mm -hmm. th then she realized this is her afterlife. Like she's going through enough trauma, like remembering that she murdered her kids and killed herself. Mm. But also like the entire like religion that she put all of her faith in may not be correct. Or may uh. maybe it is. Who knows? Maybe she is in limbo. So you think this is more questioning, like, ooh, maybe she was wrong after all. Yeah, well, because at the end of the day, the, when the movie ends, she's like, I, she's just so happy to have her kids again. So it's like mm -hmm. that almost supersedes the importance of religion in her life. And I would I would want to know is, are they still maintaining their religion and Bible studies after the credits for this movie role? Well, it's I think it's a weird kind of aspect because when you get into any, like, devout christianity your like death is like you the the success of death or whatever you want to call it is being in heaven is right that is your bliss if there you don't want to be in a situation where you are in some kind of like earth mimic right um and even if it is with your kids even if it is something that is supposed joy because at the same time like yeah at the end we get her to where she's moved another piece to where she's like all right now we don't have to like pretend that the kids have this photosensitivity anymore mm -hmm. they can just like actually be about the house and that's kind of cool and right. so it's really interesting that someone who has such a devout faith is finding you know, some solace and joy and not reaching heaven, but just kind of being trapped in this. And way. truthfully, by the laws of Christianity and especially Catholicism, she would A, go to hell for murdering her children. But oh even God. if, yeah. even if God forgave her for that, she killed herself. That is an immediate ticket to hell. Because you, you, because Catholic, Catholics believe, you know, you can ask for, you can go through reconciliation, ask for forgiveness and boom, like, you know, you're absolved of your sins. Suicide is the ultimate sin because you don't you won't you aren't able to ask for forgiveness and get them resolved. So it is literally if you kill yourself, you are going straight to hell. So I almost wonder if she's like, oh, well, this is much better than it could be. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, when when she's talking about even limbo, she does mention that if you go there, it is for eternity. So hypothetically, at the end of the film, this is where they're at. But when she talks about limbo, she says it's pain forever yeah but see to me that's hell i'm I, I, limbo is such an odd uh it, it's an interesting choice of word yeah yeah 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so Grace sends the kids to separate rooms because she doesn't like being questioned. So they're independently working on their Bible stuff. And then she hears one of them crying. But when she checks on both of them, neither one of them cop to it. They're, they say, no, this wasn't us. But Anne does say, oh, it's Victor, the spoiled brat who lives in this house. And this immediately sends Anne off. <laughs> she does not want to hear about it. She does not want to hear about the others who live in the house or the man who plays the piano. So um, she tells her not to lie. But then this is when she notices that one of the doors is ajar. And so she redirects her anger away from Anne towards Mrs. Mills and Lydia. And they say, like, hey, we're not responsible. Like, Grace really wants to blame Lydia, I think in part because she can't defend herself because mm -hmm. she doesn't speak. And Mrs. Mills is like, well, only the two of us have a set of keys. And I'm telling you, it wasn't me. <laughs> so but the whole time Bertha's like, bitch you dead like <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna play this with you until it's a little bit safer but yeah like <laughs> this is all you bitch what do we think about the the, the, the disability these kids have though so i because it's called photosensitivity i did look it up though and there's like a more specific term for it called xeroderma pigmentosum and th the thing is though <sighs> That's a specific reaction to sunlight, whereas in this film, it seems like any light, because she's like, oh, if the candle is even, like, brighter than this, they're going to get affected by it. But the very real, real uh, disability is, like, it affects one per million people in the United States, but weirdly enough, in Japan, it's 45 per million. And I remember being young, and there was a special, I think, like, on Dateline or 2020, about like two girls who had something along this line mm -hmm. and they like during the day if they had to leave their house they had like these suits that they would wear and they would like go and play at the playground late 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 at night and it was really interesting um i mean there the photosensitivity thing is interesting because like, that's also a piece of a lot of other conditions, mm -hmm. either based on, like, what they, like, what the disease itself is impacting, like, what organ system or just system in general. But also, like, medications and treatments can make you incredibly, like, sensitive to sunlight and UV rays. You know what, actually, I found that when I used Accutane for my acne you in used high school, it actually ended up, like, really making me sensitive. So I have a permanent burn on my back because 
I was just that much more sensitive to sunlight. Jesus, I wanted to use Accutane so bad, but my dad was a pharmacist and he was like, no, <laughs> you're not using that. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that shit was terrible. They never should have approved it. But you're right, Nicole. I mean, it's one of those things where I think in horror circles, we would automatically turn that into, oh, and then they became vampires because they could only play on the playground at night. But the reality is, it's like photosensitivity is just kind of a, it's a natural step towards something that all of us have which is like oh yeah we have to be careful about how much exposure we get to uv rays Mm -hmm. it's just that some people have a stronger predilection to burning or having an adverse reaction and then when we fuck with our body's dna then yeah like different kind of drugs will accelerate or expedite that yeah and i mean genetics play a part in that i get a polymorphic light eruption which is a reaction to UV rays, which is like a bubbly rash. And um, it happens like in spring and summer. And right now I have like three, I've dug like three holes into my foot from scratching. And it is, it's terrible, but it goes away after you've been exposed for a certain amount of time. And sadly, it usually goes away once the sun decides to peace out too. But yeah, I mean, there's there's so many variations of this. And so in the condition that Trace was talking about, it also talks about like the prevalence of melanoma and cancers and tumors. And obviously they, they don't play with that in this movie. Yeah, I think the closest we get is Grace mentioning that, yeah, they'll get significant blistering if they're too close to it. But then, yeah, you know they're so extreme that they could die. Mm-hmm. And I love this as a conceit. I'm glad we don't belabor the point. Like I'm, I'm happy that we have a couple of scenes that yes, you know, put the children in danger, because of course, that's really what they're here to do for the film's narrative. But we don't have to watch them sizzle and burn like a, a vampire movie or something. Right. But do you think that this falls into the category of so I, I guess Jumping to the end, yeah. that we've already talked about it, where, spoiler, she killed him. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this falls into the category of film where it's a parent of disabled child or kids, and it's like, you are too much for me, so bye. Yeah, it's, um oh shoot, what's it called, where the parent begins to harm the child because it actually like gives them control and brings them attention oh that's um, um my child's is my proxy yeah yeah i mean grace doesn't necessarily do it to gain sympathy and attention but she's very clearly harming her children by trying to control them and overprotect them to the point of i mean yeah learn she kills them but i don't know that's that's something that you see a lot in horror is a parent of a child with any kind of health or mental health issue that is kind of like, you're just too much. So we're done. And it's, I don't know. I'm glad that this film doesn't go there explicitly. I do think it's there though. I think you're right. It's just, I don't know. It's something that leaves me a little bit uncomfortable. No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad that it's there, but it doesn't belabor it. But I think it's, you know, Folks, if this is something that you're interested in hearing more about, I would definitely encourage you to listen to Nicole's podcast because Mm -hmm. she gets to tackle that in a variety of different texts. Yeah. Okay. So Grace believes that everyone is lying to her. She doesn't really know who to trust, but of course she is the correct one. So 
after dinner, uh, we send the kids to bed. And this is when Anne more or less blames Victor for opening the curtains in the shared room that she has with Nicholas. And (laughs) he gets freaked out because Victor, who eventually we will see in full light, but here is kind of cast in shadow. He's played by Alexander Vince, but he touches Nicholas and uh nicholas screams because of course he's younger and susceptible to his sister's mind games and then grace comes in and this is where the animosity between mother and daughter really ramps up so the next day it's big time punishment i actually so are we meant to believe that um like because on a first time watch do you think like do you think that the film is trying to make you think that it could be Anne's hand that's touching him and not victor's i think so because she's very carefully framed so that we don't see her so when we hear victor's voice you could believe it's her doing it but i mean when you know to look for it it's very clearly a different actor playing victor in these scenes well i'm not saying this is the first movie to ever use the whole like oh there's something in the corner but like look 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 but like was it Mm -hmm. not like the conjuring vibes and you're like oh like look in the corner he's right there and it's just darkness Hmm. it's good i mean you said this movie isn't particularly scary but i think these kinds of set pieces give you a good amount of you know ooh, adrenaline's pumping and i'm a little bit spooked yeah i mean i agree with what nicole said earlier it's unsettling mm-hmm. yeah okay so Anne is being punished and she she really is starting to make her opinions known to grace so grace wants her to apologize to the virgin And Anne says, no, I'm not going to do that because that would be a lie. And you said that if I lie, I will end up in limbo. And Grace is like, don't throw my words back at me. (laughs) (laughs) She gets very angry. As a sidebar, I would argue that Anne is very much the figurehead for the post-Franco regime, if you want to look at her from a, a kind of Spanish Civil War fallout kind of perspective. Why? I guess, like, is it is it a lot of British people that live on this island historically? I mean, it's it's closer to France. I guess I would expect more French people to live there. But I just wonder, mm-hmm. like, why why they were living here? Or maybe just because they're rich and they were like, you know what? Here's a nice house on an island. Here we go. Oh, Trey, so you're forgetting about how much the British like to colonize? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, the sun never sets on Britain because those motherfuckers went everywhere. <laughs> I love the UK. I just, yeah, they've they've got a bad history. So I don't know what you're talking about. Us Americans have no idea. Sure. Yeah. No, let, let's go with that as well. <laughs> okay. So Anne ends up getting punished for three days to the point where Mrs. Mills is like, hey, Jesus, fuck, are we done with this yet? Because come on, it's a bit overboard. But uh, the problem is, is that Grace is already sort of on pins and needles because she's trying to do this needlework and she just cannot get a moment of peace because there is stomping above her head. This did, this did get me. I I feel Mm -hmm. like the sound design in this film is top notch because the sounds are very abrupt, but it doesn't overstay them. Like, it gives you just enough to register and to be like, what the fuck is this? And then it's done and she's exploring. And yeah, I mean, at the same time, she's talked about having headaches with certain conditions and ways that headaches present. You can also get auditory and 
visual hallucinations and, and such. Well, and that's what I was actually, because I, I agree with you, Nicole. I think that the, the use of sound here is really, really well done. But I also think the use of silence here is really, really, yeah. really, like, like when she walks into this room that's, you know, uh, all the furniture's covered in sheets. I, I'm, I'm writing my notes. I was like, it is like, you could hear a pin drop. Like, it is so quiet. And I actually find this one of the most unnerving scenes in the film, as like, we're just kind of like spinning around her with the camera and stuff like that. It, it is, I love this sequence. I think one of the other things I really like about this particular portion is the restraint because when she realizes that it couldn't be Lydia who's stomping around above her because Lydia is out there getting a new one ripped by Mrs. Mill other films would have had Grace flipping the fuck out going on a tear or something and that does happen eventually but right now the film just kind of plays it cool and yeah she goes and investigates the attic and she finds the the death photo book and that kind of stuff but I appreciated that the film is just content to, you know, it's evenly paced. Yeah. Honestly, my memory, I remember this being longer. It doesn't, it, it credits roll at the hundred minute mark. Yeah. It's, it's pretty expertly done. Like it, it doesn't feel like it's rushing, but things are also happening at a good pace. Right. Yeah. So while she's in this covered up furniture attic, I mentioned that she does find some stuff, but um, <laughs> she also hears voices and this is pretty unnerving. So she she goes and asks Anne, who's been sitting out on the stairs right outside, you know, hey, who who came out here? Who who walked by you? And Anne says, oh, it was multiple people. She's actually drawn them. There's four of them. She's seen them multiple times. And they claim that the house is theirs, and they're going to open all of the windows. Oh, my God. Okay, but the number next to each of the people, she's like, was like, what do those numbers mean? Oh, that's the number of times I've seen them. And she's got 14 next to that old woman. And mm-hmm. there's something, again, just supremely creepy about the zoom in we're doing on this old woman's drawing, the drawing of this old woman's face. It's because it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> she needs to go to art school. <laughs> but she can't leave. <laughs> well, yeah, but instead of teaching Bible, like teach stick figures like that's what <laughs> we need because it, no i i agree though i think it's really creepy and child art is always rife for just hellscape i will say i actually would love to see a version of this movie from the pe- from the living people's point of view because we do see in the seance that like the ghost can manipulate actual objects because she picks up the paper and rips it up you know so mm-hmm. does that happen the whole time so like do we just like do they just see like this little like this invisible thing drawing <laughs> people on <Right>. paper <laughs> and they need to eat mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah what if they like come to the table to like do bible study yeah it's like hey like we just served up fajitas what are you doing like (laughs) and that's the thing where i'm like ah the rules i mean like it honestly if you dig too much into it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense logistically but whatever vibes well i take it that there's a moment near the end when mrs mills says you know more more people, more intruders will come and we'll see some of them and we won't see others. So I wonder if part of it is how cognizant you are of people from the other side. Like if you're living and they're dead or vice versa, if you're less aware of them, maybe you're not able to interact with them as much. Maybe. I mean, because because Anne is the one that's like, now I see, the, I talk to people all the time. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but be, because she's has like an open child's mind, whereas right. Grace doesn't because she's has this repression going on. But 
after this, all of their eyes are open. So maybe mm-hmm. they will be more inclined to see people. But that doesn't change the fact that they can still manipulate physical objects. <laughs> sure. I mean, this is where we're firmly into conjuring Beetlejuice territory, right? It'd just be like, oh my god, I can't live in this house because these fuckers are just constantly closing all the windows, they're ripping up paper. Eating toast. <laughs> <laughs> I can't eat toast in peace in this house. I bought a I bought bananas last week. Where did they go? (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to make some banana bread. Ghosts! The worst. House with ghosts. The worst. Grace, get your little children down here right now. Okay, so Grace is starting to believe. So she demands that the servants help her to organize a search party. They're going to open up all the curtains. So they lock the children in a in a dark room, and then they go on a tear throughout the rest of the house. Sorry, this is where they find the death album. Okay, but but uh, just one really quick shot here, though. There's a shot mm-hmm. of a portrait of a man. And when we cut to this frame, it's all dark in the room, and we just see, like, a face in the darkness. And, mm-hmm. again, so fucking creepy. And as soon as the light comes on, we're like, oh, okay, it's just a portrait. But yeah, it, it's, it's so amazing. creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's one of those things where, oh, we're we're using light to create scares, but also it's just really good filmmaking, like, an understanding of this will be scary simply by pulling back a curtain. <laughs> So uh, Grace has never seen a death album before, which I found a little bit peculiar, but I do gather she is quite repressed. So it's entirely possible that she's also not particularly worldly. Yeah, I don't think this is part and parcel of Catholicism. So this may not have been on her radar, even though this was definitely something that was hot. Mm-hmm. in the time yeah like particularly with dead children which is of course i think the thing that throws her off so she says it's macabre and superstitious and mrs mill is like well grief makes people react in strange <laughs> ways bitch like pot kettle let's have a conversation <laughs> Okay, so there's more moments between these two characters because Grace finally has someone that she can kind of talk to and she's interested in Mrs. Mills. So she asks, you know, what was it like when you left the house? And Miss Mills says, well, it was always there with them. So even when they left, they never really left. You're like, yeah, okay, we all get it. (laughs) But um, Grace also wants to speculate that Lydia must have gone dumb and this I found a very abrasive term. I recognize that this is sometimes what we call people with a disability, but it took me like, ugh, I did not care for it. But um, it's interesting that Grace speculates that trauma could have caused a response like this because again, what has she gone through if not trauma? And what is she doing if not repressing and manifesting all of her guilt and her isolation and so on in these proceedings? Yeah, and she does explicitly ask, was she born this way? And yeah, there's. it's always weird when certain terminology pops up and you also have this with people who are like, oh, we don't use that word. We haven't used it in ages. Like, well, no, it was part of like people were still using it mm-hmm. um, just under kind of different guises all the time. And we should note that this movie is set in 1944. So it's not as though, you know, oh, this movie is set in 2001 when it comes out. So would this have been a more popular term? Would a character like Grace, who is more sheltered, would this be the kind of dialogue or lexicon that she would have? 
I absolutely believe that. Yeah, but is there other words that she could have used that still would have checked that box Mm -hmm. and would have been as used during that time? I mean, I it's just one of those weird things when we start to parse apart like words that have now taken on completely different context. Oh yes, we're no we're no stranger to that on this podcast. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I imagine disability has a long list of those uh as well. But also gentle correction, this is 1945, not 44, because it is right after World War II is ended. Are you sure because doesn't her husband isn't that why she allows her husband to go back out? Well, no, because she's like, the war is over. Uh, okay, okay. Oh, no, yeah, I'm sorry, I wrote in my notes. We are in Jersey, the Channel Islands in 1945. Okay, there we go. Okay, so um, that night, Grace has this confronting experience with the piano where, yes, the door slams in her face, and it's, it is a, a really good sequence. I mm-hmm. I completely forgot this was in here. <laughs> this, this I, I remember even in theaters, like 12-year-old Trace, like this got me. Oh, it's still creepy. It is still creepy. It's funny, right? Like, it's such an innocuous thing if you unpack what's actually going on, right? This is this is the, the man of the house actually fighting back against the ghost who wants to shut down his piano playing. <sighs> but from Grace's perspective, it's it's massive, right? Like, this is everything she's been trying to say is not going on. And there's no one else around. So it's only happening to her. She can't deny what she's seeing anymore. Well, and it kind of sucks, though, because this is the point where it's like, okay, like, you know, once you've seen this, you're like, okay, cool. Bertha, Mr. Tuttle, Lydia, they're all going to tell her, like, okay, cool. Like, now you can be on the same page as us. Mm -hmm. And honestly, there's not a lot of humor in this movie. (laughs) But when Bertha goes to Tuttle, well, now she thinks the house is haunted. God, but of course, you know, then the husband's going to come back soon. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Like in between the husband coming back and this scene, we have Mrs. Mills saying, you know, oh, well, I actually do believe in these stories Mm -hmm. about the living and the dead interacting. And Grace explicitly just says, oh, well, that's not in the Bible, so I don't believe it. And now I'm going for a walk. It's like, oh, my God, (laughs) what is it going to take, lady? (laughs) So she does, yes, and she finds her husband out in the woods. So Charles is played by Christopher Eccleston. Don't get excited, folks. He is in this for, what, a hot five minutes? Yeah, they don't even get to have sex. They just lie there. Oh, you don't think they have sex? I think they have sex. I don't know, man. He seems real out of it. They have they have their kind of sex. Like, <laughs> broken Catholic ghost sex. i mean he's definitely shell-shocked he looks very confused when she finds him in the woods and then he just looks hella sad and kind of withdrawn when they bring him back but i took it to mean that they do have sex because she tells him like she's really mad at him for leaving and leaving them but most specifically leaving her because she was afraid that he wasn't going to come back to her so i felt like he kind of concedes and they have sex here to prove that he's not going to leave and then he leaves no, but, uh, and so because i know you said joe earlier that you're like oh i don't know if this is like really like just her hallucinating this or something and to me, again, I, I, logically, with the rules of this film, I don't really know what this is, unless it's like whatever higher power there is was mm-hmm. like, you know what? We need to give her, like, throw her a bone. 
<laughs> Literally and figuratively. Uh, <laughs> so, and then, and then maybe after this, she can move on finally. Right. I don't know. Because, uh, again, like this idea of the afterlife is, okay, like, so you're going to be reunited with your loved ones, but they don't yeah. get reunited with that father. No. I mean, this feels like a taster, right? Like maybe she needed Charles and he was still kicking around. So he comes back and then he realizes, oh, this isn't my version of heaven. So I'm going to peace out. Or maybe he realized he was dead or mm-hmm. fuck. Honestly, the horrifying thought is what if his afterlife is just war? Well, I feel like maybe his afterlife is <laughs> wandering. Yeah. Um, nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's so sad. Like, you do feel like this moment of, of relief for her when she sees him. And it is like, it is kind of, it's genuinely touching because she seems so excited and he seems really taken aback. Like he, he knew where he was, but he didn't, he kind of expected to see her, mm-hmm. but he didn't. And mm. so it's this really, this really intense kind of, you know, okay, now I can try to feel complete. My right. my family is now complete, but yet there's still something off. And I think she's battling. I mean, obviously she's battling a lot, but I think it's things are starting to peel back for her and she's not able to kind of create this uh, story for herself because she immediately clocks that he's not <laughs> the same. Mm-hmm. and it's not just he's been through a lot she really does she's like this isn't this isn't what i what i thought it would be and i don't know what to do right like her afterlife was her life that she knows it right now was hinging on her husband coming back mm-hmm. and he does come back and it doesn't fix anything but also nope. even bertha's reaction to him she's like what the fuck are you doing here Exactly. Like, everyone just seems so surprised, even him. I I think that this is the most perplexing part of the film in a good way. Yeah. But I remember in the theater, even back in 2001, when he shows up, I was just like, did she manifest him? Where did this man come from? <laughs> I think it's really fascinating. And again, I, I, I'm going to stop mentioning rules after this, because honestly, I think it's a thing where it's like, but maybe that's the point, right? Like, we mm-hmm. don't know what the afterlife is, and no. this movie doesn't have rules for the afterlife because... These characters don't know it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, e- even, like, the three servants, it's like, yeah, they, they know as much as they know because they've been dead for longer, mm-hmm. but they don't know everything. Well, even like, yeah, I mean, they clearly haven't moved on. So are they just compelled to help whoever moves into this house endlessly? Like, oh, boy, let's talk about literal indentured servitude for the rest of your fucking lives. Well, and again, if we're going to say this is limbo, we know why Grace is there. But why are the kids still here? Why? What did the servants do in their lives to make them deserve this fate? It's because they all lied. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we're we're actually having a conversation between the characters at this moment about that very thing, because Charles isn't well enough to come to the dinner. So before he leaves, uh, everybody's like, cool, let's pretend like there isn't a totally broken man up in the bedroom. Let's have a normal dinner. And this is when Grace says, well, there's goodies and baddies and they go to different places when they die. And this is when the animosity or the the discomfort between Grace and Anne comes to the forefront again because 
Anne wants to know, well, how do you know who's good and who's bad? And of course, Grace is going to say, well, if you live by the rules of the Bible, then you'll know that you're good. And I don't think that that's a comforting or even a, a satisfying answer for Anne. So she ends up getting really frustrated. I did want to highlight the fact that Anne actually starts to hyperventilate when she gets frustrated here, and Grace tells her to stop breathing. This is something, too, that Victor will do later. So do we, like, because mm -hmm. this doesn't come back, except for the Victor thing. So is this something that maybe she does with Victor, like, because she saw him behave this way in front of his parents? Or is it just something, like, oh, just a kid thing? Maybe it's just a reaction to a tense moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when I was watching it, that did kind of take me out when she's like, don't breathe. Like, okay. <laughs> I'll admit, I, I do see it as a kind of Lydia-esque manifestation of trauma, where Anne is the one who's most cognizant of her mother's moods, right? She's constantly saying, like, when mommy went mad, these are the things uh -huh. that happened, right? Yeah. So this is Grace getting mad at her, and so she's She's getting upset because the last time mommy went mad, I got asphyxiated. Oh, okay. I, I like that, actually. I also love Bertha. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, now she's behaving as if nothing's happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she's so <laughs> exasperated by this. <laughs> yeah, but it's okay because there are surprises and changes coming. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, yeah. Like Mrs. Mills is kind of done with it, but also she recognizes, okay, we just have to break grace because really the kids are going to be easy to do. So let's move into the infamous communion dress incident, shall we? Mm -hmm. So what do we think of this sequence? I like it. It's still, I think it's still really effective. It made me nervous when I went back and watched it because it had been a while. And right. I was like, is this just going to play really cheesy mm -hmm. now? I still think it's really effective. And I like that you do get a sense now of like, it, it is really a moment where, and because I think you also like, Anne is having kind of her own exploration of her faith too, mm -hmm. because they have that whole conversation about what would you do if someone questioned you about right. your faith and she's like well i would deny it but i would still probably in my heart believe that mm -hmm. this was this was my belief and i think that she finds this moment that she she can relate to and she can relate to her mom her mom is being very sweet yeah. to her and is like i made this veil just for you and it's really beautiful and really touching it's very sweet for them and then it just goes it's like the fracture. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I like the way it's filmed. Because again, with the old woman's face and hand like under the, like, under the veil, I think it's all great. But actually, what I like about this, and I'm a little surprised that this isn't Grace's like realization moment. Because basically mm -hmm. what happens here is almost a reenactment of how she killed them to begin with. Right. Because she... She realizes, you know, after after pulling the veil off and like almost strangling the fuck out of Anne, oh shit, this is my daughter. Like it, mm -hmm. it almost feels like it mirrors what would have been their murder scene. I also do love that we don't ever flash back to the murder scene. Right. Thank God. Yeah. I feel, not because I don't want to see them this happen, but I just feel like it would like it doesn't need it. Like it would be no. It would feel almost tasteless for this kind of a movie. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that this is 
a female film like it's very domestic it's about the interior lives of multiple women the men are really peripheral and I think it would be kind of gauche to show a woman like Grace committing these horrible acts. Again, I think this film is just a little too classy to do something like that. Yeah, which I, I hate even saying yes to that because then I'm like, okay, so you're saying a movie without like, like with with murdering children and gore and stuff is less classy, and it's, it's I, I, that's not what I think either one of us is saying. But like with this film specifically, <laughs> it's that other films sometimes feel the need to shock, like use the violence and right. the gore to achieve certain functions, and this film a maybe isn't trying to do that to the same degree, but also I think doesn't feel the need to placate audiences with that because we're building a strong atmosphere in other ways. Yeah. Okay. So in the wake of the communion dress incident, Grace is very suspicious. So as as you both said, you know, she kind of retcons her own consciousness <laughs> after her husband leaves. She basically dials back, no, there's no intruders. I won't hear any more of this. It's not actually happening. <laughs> so here she starts to become suspicious of Mrs. Mills because, oh, how come she's suddenly offering me pills? And she's talking about changes that need to be done. So Grace is very much losing control, and she doesn't like that. So technically, we've jumped around. Like, Charles is still here. Yeah. They have their sex scene, then he leaves. And this drives another wedge between Anne and Grace because Anne loves her father. Like, you can tell that she was... She had a stronger connection to her dad than she did her mom. And after this, we won't we won't see Anne be physical with Grace until the moment where, like, everything has really hit the fan. Yeah. So um, after dad has left, this is when all the curtains go missing. Ooh. The children wake up and all of the curtains in the house are gone. Honestly, if I was a living member of this house, I'd be like, fuck you, ghost. Like, <laughs> yes, right? I'm going to take down. You keep talking about the curtains. I'm just going to take them off. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but also, again, like the sarcastic reaction that the servants have to this. <laughs> Mr. Tuttle, did you know someone's taking all the curtains? Oh, dear. Why would anyone want to take all the curtains? <laughs> they have had it. They are through with this lady's bullshit. We're not tolerating this anymore. This has to be a natural breaking point, right? Like, okay, who has taken all the curtains? And of course, she suspects it's them. And that doesn't go over well because uh, Mrs. Mills is at the end of her tether. So she orders Mr. Tuttle to uncover the gravestones. Can you imagine being a ghost in that house and being like, I just want to take a good picture and there's no <laughs> goddamn light. <laughs> like, you're just like, I just want, like, I'm looking very good today. <laughs> and I just want a nice picture and there's no way of course you're going to take down the curtains <laughs> and I like how we then get more of that maze situation of oh no the kids but I think we also start to see I kind of noticed it this time I think early early on in the film the first time that they're in the bedroom no this is this scene when she looks up at the window and the window is open mm -hmm. and the kids mm -hmm. are there and they're okay. They're not frying. It's okay. And so it's very interesting. But she's not ready to process that yet. No, 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 yeah. no, no. But, 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 but that's, again, like, the, like the, 
the juxtaposition of her reaction to the servant's reaction is just so funny to me. And also, again, going to the side of the living here. So their haunting has basically been all the doors keep shutting on them and all Mm -hmm. the curtains keep getting closed. So (laughs) every time they try to let light into this house, it just gets snuffed out. Whereas it's the exact opposite (laughs) for the ghost. (laughs) (laughs) So Grace ends up having a really hyperbolic reaction to this. It's kind of similar to when she wanted them to search the whole house to try to uh, see if anybody was hiding when she thought that there were Nazis in there. Mm -hmm. So in this case, she wants them to turn the house upside down to see where the curtains are. And, this makes Anne and then by proxy Nicholas think, okay, mom is definitely losing it. So they decide that they're going to sneak out for a little bit of a breather. Like we need to get away from mom before she loses her mind. Let's crawl out the window. Let's go into the woods. And Grace is also outside at this point. And they they kind of simultaneously but independently discover, oh shit, the servants are dead. Like, they've been dead for a long time. Oh, I love the cross-cutting here, though. I think this is all... This is building suspense very well, and, like, the climax is just like, whoop! Although, again, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't remember what I thought the first time I saw this, but, like, what what do you think we're meant to think the gravestones are? Because I feel like you're meant to think they belong to the mom and the kids. Yeah, but it's not. It's the servants. Well, oh, no, I, I know. But that's what I'm saying is they're like, so when you first watch this movie, like, what do you think the movie is trying to make you think these gravestones are before the actual reveal that it's the servants and if it is like oh it's the mom and the kids so then it's really mm-hmm. not an end of movie twist that they're already dead like it's telegraphed almost very straightforwardly well i think you've read it properly so you're meant to think that it's grace and the kids but then we get confirmation oh no it's the servants. so it's the uh... movie saying oh you were starting to figure it out but now we're actually giving you a red herring and okay. telling you the servants are dead and then that way we can double back and hit you again by the reveal. Oh, no, you were right all along. Grace okay. is also dead. So you get like a five minute reprieve of like, oh, shit. OK, so they're the ghosts. Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. and the kids are not ghosts. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, they are. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's <laughs> okay. dead. Everyone in this movie is dead. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah. So when we realize that the servants are dead, obviously everybody freaks out. We run back to the house Scooby-Doo style. We lock all the doors. And then Mrs. Bills and the others just kind of crowd around the glass and act okay. like vampires. But I think this, okay, honestly, when they're just like walking towards the kids, towards the, I think that's all really creepy. And again, the the the, the, the frame of them just standing at the door is also really fucking creepy. And I, it, mm-hmm. it makes it scarier because they're like, we're not the others. There's still people in your house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do like that moment of, by the way. Let's Mm -hmm. rethink what you think are the intruders Mm -hmm. in this house and really figure it out because it's you think that we're pulling shenanigans and it's never been us. Mm -mm. Question, Joe. Um, This might be too much of a reach, but I know how much you hate homages to The Shining in films. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the the part where the servants are walking up the steps towards the house and Grace is like holding the gun at him like get away get away mm. is it kind of similar <laughs> to the staircase scene in The Shining uh, maybe a little I I feel like I'm okay with lesser known homages is when you're going for the most obvious yeah. thing and you're not really doing anything interesting with it the blood of so <laughs> I could see this as that I didn't I didn't read it as that way so if it is in fact that kudos for them Mm -hmm. 
So, okay, yeah. So the family has locked themselves in. The ghost servants are outside. Grace orders the kids to run upstairs. They hide in a closet. <laughs> and this is where Anne actually tells Nicholas to stop breathing because he's hyperventilating in the closet. But then they hear the voice of an old woman. Children, come to me. Come with us. Oh, uh, yeah. I will say too, also, like the reveal of her like blinded out face is mm -hmm. also, I think, a really good scare. It's so good. And I think, again, this speaks to like the artistry, I think, just pure artistry in this film and that it's kind of framed like it's disturbing and unsettling but there's mm -hmm. something like really compelling and lovely about how this is set up and you can't take your eyes off it of this woman just like you're like who what what's happening who is this person what are they doing how are they summoning these children what do they mean i think it's so satisfying to you like one of the smartest creative decisions for me is we walk in on this sale so grace barges in the kids are crying and we're getting confirmation like this this medium is fully saying children what happened who killed you did your mother kill you like to that effect and they're screaming like we're not dead we're not dead and you're like okay yeah confirmation they've all been dead this whole time <laughs> but then we switch and tracy mentioned this earlier we're seeing everything from the perspective of the marlish family so the medium is played by renee asherson and mr and mrs marlish are played by keith allen and game of thrones michelle fairly dude i was like i know that woman i know that face I know. <laughs> <laughs> wild wild but i love that we switch so we finally do get to see what it looks like from their perspective and it's fucking scary yeah you're right we're just seeing papers getting ripped up and the table getting overthrown and chairs lifting off the ground you're like oh this would be a level two haunting if you lived in this house or level two <laughs> <laughs> but I also love that it's a it's a nice little callback to Anne mentioning that when she would see, because I think Grace or someone asked her, like, when you see this old woman or when you are talking to these people, what do they say? And she says, like, they're asking me questions. Mm -hmm. And so I love that that's a nice little callback to that because she's asking questions. What happened to you? It's so well done in, in the shift of perspective is really really nice like it's jarring but you're with it mm -hmm. i also like like these people don't really seem too afraid by the ghost like even the michelle fairley character she's like look i i just don't want to be here like they clearly right. i'm just tired of dealing with this bullshit like it's not like i'm terrified it's i'm annoyed <laughs> by all of this yeah because they're not being injured by anything they're being inconvenienced right Mm -hmm. But it is it is fun, right? I mean, actually, that's a beautiful segue. I'm going to bring Acevedo Munez back in here. And he says, for Grace Anne and Nicholas, isolation, repression, death, even hell, heaven and limbo have to be recognized before their healing process can begin. And one of the things that the movie does so well, sorry, now I'm going back to him, mm -hmm. is he says, there is really no evil from without to destroy in the film. Like, there's no evil that needs to be conquered or vanquished. Like, there is no actual ghosts, intruders. There's no Nazis. The movie doesn't do that. The only real threat, the monsters and the ghosts that Grace and her children have to stubbornly try to escape, is just their own history. Yes. So... I want to bring in my own queer reading for this part. Okay. 
So we've talked about how Amenabar is a, is a queer man, but at the point that he made this movie, he was not yet out. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Grace as a closeted figure, she's unwilling to accept who she really is, mm-hmm. even though people are trying to guide her, trying to help her see the light. Hey, maybe you've been repressing something or you're not willing to accept what's going on with you. Mm-hmm. And it's only over time that she is able to accept the situation or her own history. And I think that that's a really interesting, like, journey of self-discovery that maybe could factor into the director's own process. I don't disagree with that, although it does make the servants feel like assholes. (laughs) (laughs) Just come out already. (laughs) Come on, lady. Like, you're hurting your kids. You're hurting other people. Be true to yourself. Live your happy life. Let Let your children experience sunshine. I mean, and like, I, I'm not even pushing back at you because I do like the read, but it's not a completely one to one thing because it's no. it, it's not as, it, if we're, unless we're saying who she is, is a mad woman. Um, it's more so her actions as opposed to like queerness being an identity. Mm hmm. No, no, that's fair. <laughs> so even though at this point we basically know what has gone on because we we heard the medium say you know like oh okay isn't this the woman that like killed her kids and then killed herself grace still needs to actually verbalize this so she takes the kids out into the hall she explains that she did these things that she doesn't remember doing so after it was done she heard them playing in their room and she thought to herself that the Lord had granted her mercy and given her another chance mm-hmm. to be a good mother, among other things. And so she did realize at some point that she had done all this. But then yes. I guess once she settled into the groove, what, a day later, she was like, oh, <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> well, I almost feel like it was an instantaneous thing. Like she knew what she had done and she shut down. Or mm-hmm. she killed herself, like, well, she, she went into it. Because she uh, she didn't consciously kill her kids. I mean, based on what she said, she was just holding the pillow. All of a sudden, she was holding the pillow in her hands, and then she, they weren't breathing. I mean, I think this goes back to what Nicole said earlier. So, Nicole, when you were like, I think there are just some parents who can't deal with their special needs disabled children. I think that the combination of factors like Grace feeling like her husband had abandoned her, Maybe the servants really did leave. We don't know. But all of the stakes of the house just kind of loom. And she realizes, I can't do this. I don't want to be here anymore, but I have to take the children with me. And she kills them. And then she realizes what she's done and she either kills herself or she goes with them and she kills herself. Right. And I think there's also that layer of if you get into like the dogma and beliefs is what would damnation for her children look like because you get so many layers of that sprinkled in to where it's like well if i killed my kids i've killed them and they're sinless Mm -hmm. they haven't done they haven't committed a transgression that's going to get them in you know chucked into the center of the earth where it is very hot i'm sparing them from that and so I don't know. It's it's really complex. And, and I do love that you just get all of this crescendoing all at once in her. It's really, really tough. 
I'm curious, do y'all, so while watching the, this, like, epilogue of sorts, because, you know, she's she's basically narrating exactly what happened to her kids, mm-hmm. do y'all feel like it's kind of reminiscent of, and I'm saying this, Joe, because we just recently covered Psycho, but, like, of the, the psychiatrist at the end of that movie just explaining Norman away and being like, okay, in case you didn't get it, <laughs> this is what happened. I don't, personally. This feels to me like we're putting a bit of a cap on it, but it's not to the same degree. Like, in Psycho, it... And again, I think that's because it's a 1960 film. They needed to make sure that audiences understood exactly what had happened. Right. Whereas here, this feels like, to me, it reads like the character working through her own consciousness. Like she's coming to the realization mm. of what's happened and she's saying it in her own words as opposed to leaving random characters that were only just introduced for the medium scene. So I I find it... This is the true end of the film to me, where Grace can finally acknowledge what she's done up to a point. And then, Nicole, going back to what you were saying then. So, I mean, because we, we have her, you know, the, the, the girl's like, if we're dead, where's Limbo? And her and, and and Grace's response is, I don't know if there even is a Limbo. I'm no wiser than you are. But mm-hmm. you're right, though. What? I guess... A part of me when I watched this was like, well, this really sucks for those kids because they don't deserve this. Like, they deserve to go to heaven. But that's me assuming that in the world of this film that there is a heaven. Right. And I think that it's an interesting break where instead of Grace kind of putting her beliefs and her faith forefront and really kind of forcing them on her kids and using that as a way to kind of I don't want to say control them because you know the kids push back and she's not necessarily like cruel or abrasive in response to that she actually listens to them and has some conversation but it's this weird moment of you know what we don't have it figured out and we're just here together and we maybe we can make something of that we had your dad for a moment Mm -hmm. and i was able to have like a family and you were able to have your dad and now this is where we are and and let's figure it out and there's something really peaceful about that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think one of the things that resonates so clearly to me about this ending is that you can read this as oh yeah they're trapped in a horrible fucking limbo like they didn't get into heaven they're stuck in this house they're doomed to repeat interactions with the intruders forever or you can see the hopefulness and the happiness where they're together they finally understand their situation they can open the windows and they get to live in their house like you know the movie ends essentially with them saying the house is theirs and they all repeat it like a mantra And that could be a bad thing or that could be a good thing. It really depends on how you feel or like how you as an audience want to take that ending. And that ties back to what Nicole was saying earlier. It's just very sad. I don't know, though. Like, does it have to be sad? Because I I read this as a bit hopeful. Um, I I don't. I think it's both personally, because I think, yes, they both all of them have come to this realization. They can now like live, quote unquote, as a happy family. Mm -hmm. But. They're stuck in this house for all eternity, as far as right. we know, and the kids are never going to grow older. <laughs> well, and it is interesting, though, to think this is a story where we don't have like the like any of the ghosts being necessarily aggressive or mm-hmm. mean to the intruders. There's no, yeah. there's none of that, and so there is kind of this peaceful coexistence, 
of, yeah, these people are going to come through, but this is our house. This yeah. is where we live. And we know how to kind of exert our presence here. And that's okay because we're mm-hmm. not causing harm. We're sending them off in a car, but we're not killing them. We're not doing anything like that. So I don't know. I do find it. Yeah. I mean, you can piece apart the fact that these kids are kids for the rest of their lives and the absolute mind fuck of that experience. <laughs> but you also get this okay this you know this is our home it's not heaven is our home this is our home right and we can be together and there is something really i just find it almost like uplifting it's like oh this has been really sad but now they're together they're chill no one's being mad at each other they can have some tea sit down <laughs> they can relax. <laughs> yeah. It's the happiest version of infanticide that you could possibly get in a horror film. Do y'all think they're going to continue to then try to like, so let, let's say a living like are they going to keep trying to push the living out um in the future or are they maybe going mm. to try to cohabitate with them a la Beetlejuice. <laughs> right. But does Beetlejuice try to cohabitate? Well, I'm sorry. I mean the I mean the movie Beetlejuice, so the Maitlands. Yeah, like yeah. are they going to be like the Maitlands in Beetlejuice? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Mrs. Mills seems to suggest that, yes, there will be more, quote unquote, intruders or others who will come to live with them. But when they're standing at the door, like, you know, kind of doing the, let us in, we're going (laughs) to let us (laughs) in, let us in, let us out, let us out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Mills says during that sequence, she says, you know, we're simply trying to help you understand the new situation of the house. And I think that's another way to read this ending is that we just have a new understanding of how this is going to work. And, you know, yeah, Grace and the kids will not be pushed out. It's their house. But we don't know whether they're going to try to make it work with other people or if it just means like, no, this is our place. And if more people try to come in, we'll just cause a ruckus. But yeah, um, so the final images is this family, the Marlish family, getting in their car and kind of saying goodbye. And then we see the for sale sign back on that gate, baby. The others too coming 2024. Uh, it's gonna be a no for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's how these kids are gonna get back into acting, actually. But um, right, yes, a legacy sequel with these children. <laughs> hey, right. with the new with the new release though coming out, maybe there will be. Oh boy! Honestly, I'm not even like d- disputing the the cr- criterion selecting this. I'm just like I'm a little surprised, honestly, that they picked this to go into it. But I hope it does bring more attention to the film because I don't think it's um. As you said, Joe, it doesn't have the same, I don't feel like, uh, maybe cultural lasting impact as something like The Sixth Sense had. Well, it's wild because when you talk to people about this film, I've never heard somebody say, oh, that's a bad film. The worst you hear is, oh, you know, it's a little bit derivative of The Sixth Sense, which I say, well, let that go. But yeah, it's weird. This movie isn't that old, but people like it. We just don't often talk about it. So I don't know. Yeah, I I have a feeling, I mean, when the Criterion got announced, people seemed very excited about it. So I can imagine we'll have a a bit of a The Other's Assance. The Other's (laughs) Assance. Okay, everyone. Well, that has been The Others. Uh, Before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Nicole, first, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this with us. And uh, let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Uh, You can find me right now on a thing, I think. 
called X. Um, <laughs> maybe called something else by the time this drops. Um, <laughs> uh, at Bodies Horror. And yeah, you can find me over at the Anatomy of a Scream feed by Weekly. Uh, talking about uh, a horror film uh, through the lens of disability. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers and tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. Uh, If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more Horror Queers content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are in August, so subscribe today to get around 256 hours of Patreon content, including this month's discussion of horror tropes that gotta go, as well as episodes on Meg to the Trench, Talk to Me, The Last Voyage of the Demeanor, and to tie in with that last one, our audio commentary for the month will be on Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola one. (laughs) Are you ready for me to stop saying that once we get to September? (laughs) We're just a couple weeks away. Yeah, Uh, Joe! Yes. What? Oh, oh, we have an off-kilter pick next week. What are we discussing? Mm Hmm. Yes. So we're potentially leaving horror behind, but we are racketing up the anxiety trace. We're going to do a little bit of sitting shiva. So we're talking about Shiva Baby. Oh, yeah, everyone. This movie, um, a starring Rachel Sennett, the breakout star of last year's Bodies, 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 and will also be starring in, I think, actually, um, Bottoms, which comes out the same month. Um. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is a non-horror movie, but it's almost shot like a horror movie. And so that is why we are discussing this. Yeah. And it's also queer. And uh, Also queer. Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. But until then, we can cross out the others. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.